All right, Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam, in the vision I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came towards the two-horned ram I had seen, standing beside the canal, and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven." Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of the sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifices were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did. The truth was thrown to the ground. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another one, holy one, said to him, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that would be trampled underfoot? He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, and then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. 
He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and I went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, I'm going to own up front uh, that this is going to be a significant part of this message is going to be a history lesson. I'm really sorry, if you had a negative um, experience of history at school or at uni, it's not history's fault, it's your lecturer's fault. Uh, And so I hope, by God's grace, to redeem a bit of history for you. So what I've got is I've got a whole bunch of A3 handouts that look like I'm a crazy conspiracy dude. Uh, I promise I'm not, or it has nothing to do with this particular handout. So if one person from each aisle um, wants to, maybe the central person in the aisle, you want to come, and I'm going to give you these, because at least having one between two, if not one per person, is really helpful. Uh, thanks, Lou. Thanks, Andrew. There we go. Thanks, yes. Okay. Thanks, Bonnie. <laughs> Yeah, probably too many. You can sort it out. There we go, Bevan. Thank you. I have I have overprinted, so we should have should have sufficient for one each, I imagine. Thanks, Charlie. Okay. Thanks, Josh. Oh, all right. Oh, you've actually gone. I meant one. I've, I didn't communicate clearly. Okay, you guys can go back. I think there's enough for one entire row, not the half rows. Sorry about that. So if you've got excess, do you want to find a... I've done this terribly. It, look bewildered if you don't have one for your row, and then someone who's got excess, take it to that person. And with our powers combined, we might get this done. Yeah, okay, that's good. Yeah, if you've got more than... See, one, I think I've got enough for one each. If you've got more than one each on your road, pass it backwards. That might be a way to do it as well. Hopefully we'll get there. Now, if you were here last week, um, we did the previous chapter, Daniel 7, and you would have noticed that um, Scott uh, provided a number of different um, diagrams, um, and it's not as I'm competing with Scott, <laughs> although I would observe, he's fitted onto 1A5 and this is A3, so take that as you will. Uh, now, the reason why I've uh, provided, this is pretty unusual, if you're a visitor here this, this morning, this is not the normal way, but... Uh, Daniel uh, 8, probably Daniel 8 to 12, is one of those bits of um, the Bible scripture where you kind of need to know ancient history and a particular part of ancient history to really understand its meaning. You, you can get it without it, there's still stuff to take away, but I think that the chapter only comes alive when you understand the place of Daniel, his prophecy, and how it's fulfilled uh, in the years after him. Uh, so that's why. 
Uh, that's why I will do this. Uh, you will note that uh, it is a hybrid. I've borrowed my Bible software's very neat hand, uh, printing uh, typeset, and then I, as you can see, didn't still operate without getting my pen license from Mrs. Higgins in year three. Uh, so it means I'm illegally using pen, uh, but hopefully I will add the clarity that the sheet lacks. Two, just two things to note. Um, we're dealing with BC, that's before, um, before Christ, and so it means time works backwards. It doesn't work backwards, but like you, go, you get to smaller rather than greater, so that's why we start at 600 BC and we work to zero well, Christ's birth rather than after Jesus' time counts upwards. Just, just if you weren't aware, that's kind of how that thing works. Uh, and I will, I, um, I promise, be referring to this extensively, but not for a, not for a few minutes, so hold on to that. Uh, again, so Scott preached Daniel 7 last week, and one of the things he really helpfully showed us is that you can kind of split the book of Daniel into two sections, chapter one, chapters 1 to 6, and then chapters 7, which is kind of like a hinge, uh, and then 8 to 12. And 1 to 6 is, is kind of history, well, is history. It's set particularly in the Babylonian and the Persian courts and what happens with Daniel and his friends. It contains some dreams and some visions, but it's mainly about historic kind of occurrences. Chapter 7 to 12 moves from historic to a type of literature or a style of writing that we call apocalyptic, that's the technical word. Uh, and so it starts to, uh, if you want, kind of, uh, history is focused on events on earth. Apocalyptic kind of zooms out, still looking at events on in earth, on earth, but from a heavenly kind of divine perspective. And when it zooms out, part of it, it doesn't lose focus in the zooming out, but what it does do is it starts to provide very vivid and vibrant um, imagery. Uh, and so last week uh, in Daniel chapter 7, we had those four beasts. We had chapter 7 verse 4, we had the, uh, the beast that was like a lion, but it had wings of an eagle and the mind of a human. And Scott helped us to see how that is apocalyptic, vivid, kind of heavenly language to describe an earthly reality, heavenly language, earthly reality, which was the kingdom of Babylon. And then you move from the, the lion to the bear, which has, it's kind of a lopsided bear that's kind of got rib-like dentures in it. And as Scott helpfully showed, that's the Medo-Persian Empire, the Persian of the Medes, the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. And then you've got the four-headed leopard, uh, and on its back has four wings like that of a bird, and it has um, four heads as well. And that's the kingdom of Greece, as Scott showed us. And then there's the last, the hideous, the indescribable beast, who's probably like a mixture of the Roman Empire and another number of empires to come. He, he kind of represents darkness in its kind of fully concentrated form. So you've got the lion-eagle-human hybrid, the bear with ribbed dentures, the flying four-winged and four-headed leopard and the indescribable beast. And that is kind of, that's classic apocalyptic language. And if you're familiar with the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it's an apocalyptic book it's describing earthly realities from heaven, uh, and it uses lots of these same images. But that does mean that when we move to chapter 8, which is our chapter this morning, it is like a little bit disappointing, frankly, because the animals are domesticated. We've got a ram and we've got a goat, which you and I all know. But at the least, at least we can say this for chapter 8, at least its head is mutated and it has four horns. So it's at least keeping that element of apocalyptic literature. 
Uh, in fact, apocalyptic literature has been described by uh, some as the kind of the science fiction or the fantasy genre of the Bible. Which is partly right, that is, it, it, it does use that kind of fantastical language. But I think also there's something really unhelpful for that way of categorising this type of writing. And you see this type of writing in Daniel, you see it in Zechariah, you see it in Joel, you see it in Ezekiel and Isaiah, and you see it in Revelation, if they mean anything to you, they're books in the Bible. You see it all throughout Scripture. But what's unhelpful about describing it as sci-fi or fantasy is that it seems to imply that it's kind of like make-believe, that apocalyptic visions and the way that they depict history, it implies that that's kind of less true than more kind of straightforward factual accounts of history. Uh, But here's what I want to suggest this morning, this is kind of like my one thesis, if I've got one, it's this. I want to suggest that the opposite is true. I want to suggest that apocalyptic descriptions are actually more true than historic depictions. Apocalyptic descriptions are more true than historic depictions. What do I mean? Well, apocalyptic images and and, and that type of literature doesn't just offer us rich, symbol-laden pictures, which it does, but actually what it does is it does more than that. It starts to open up another, I don't know, like dimension of existence. It kind of peels back the curtain of reality and exposes the spiritual, the cosmic reality behind mundane, quote-unquote, history. Let me try and make my point a little clearer. You see, those four kingdoms in Daniel chapter 7 are described with kind of bestial, beast-like language, not just because that's kind of a, a, a engaging image for the preacher, but it, it, it cuts to the heart of a truth, which is that those kingdoms, Medo, Persia, Babylon, Greece, are more than just kind of geopolitical units. They're more than just human empires. They are nations with their exploitation, their brutality, their wickedness. They are nations that have been kind of co-opted, enticed, collude with dark forces, demonic, satanic forces. You can put it like this, apocalyptic literature looks beyond material causation to see kind of, well, the deeper, darker forces at work. It doesn't deny the truth of history, it's pointing to history that you and I live in time and a place and we do things and they're recorded and they're genuine, but it looks at what's going on kind of behind the scenes. Or you can narrow it down to this, put another way, there's a battle going on up there to use spatial language, but it plays out down here, this is a theatre of that war. There is a struggle between good and evil, light and dark, angelic and demonic. And apocalyptic literature reveals that, but it does one thing more. It it actually points to the fact that it's all part of the plan. You see, while you and I, we looked at history, human history, and it's really hard to work out the goodies from the baddies, hard to tell who will win and why, 
hard to know what the past even means to know then what the future holds. Not so apocalyptic visions, because they see from a heavenly perspective, they see more clearly reality for what it is. They can divide dark from light, true from false, good from evil. They can see past, present and future. Because the future is not up for grabs. The future is not a product of random chaotic forces of molecules that bounce, of chance and necessity. It's not a toss of a celestial dice. History is, as it's often remarked, is his story. The future is in God's hand. He knows the beginning from the end, and that's why he can give visions to men like Daniel that show the future, because he knows the future. And I I want to suggest this. I want to suggest that perhaps more than any other chapter in all of the Bible, Daniel chapter 8 is where you see that truth more clearly. Because here's the thing that will, will strike you as you read Daniel 8, if you, if you follow along, is you will see how amazingly, how impossibly Daniel 8 predicts the future. Reveals is probably a better word. Reveals the future. In fact, it does it so accurately, so uncannily, That is, what Daniel says will happen maps so tightly onto what actually does happen over the next two and four hundred years that that sceptics and non-believers, they have to argue that the book must have been written after the events it pretends to predict. It says, no, Daniel says he's pointing forward, but in fact he's pointing backwards and pretending he's pointing forward, if that makes sense. And they're forced to do that because they deny what I and likely you hold true, is that no, God actually does know the future. And Daniel 8 will reveal that to us. All right, if you've got a Bible in Daniel 8, let's read verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign... Pause. Okay, so now we're going to start using our little A3 sheet, so you need that. You'll see that on the far left of the sheet, there's a little box with a squiggly line and an arrow. That's to let you know that this vision is taking place in 551 BC. Right, so two and a half thousand years ago, because that is, and we know that is, the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. So we have a date. This whole thing is anchored concretely in history, 551. But as equally important as the date is, is the location too. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me, which is chapter 7, which we looked at last week. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, or Shusha, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. Now, it's important to note where this takes place. Daniel is physically in Babylon, in the capital of the empire, also known as Babylon. But in this vision, he's kind of transported some kind of, I don't know, 800, 1200 kilometers to a place called Susa or Shusa. Who's Susan when she's at home? She's this. She is the capital of the Medo Persian Empire. Right? So he's taken from one capital, the capital at the moment in 551, that is the world superpower, 
to a kind of up-and-coming, but not yet nearly as powerful, power in his vision. Now, why is, why is Daniel taken there? Well, if you have a look at our A3 sheet, at the bottom, with my beautiful handwriting, we've got empires. And you see there's a timeline there. So, Daniel gets the vision in 551 BC, but the kingdom of Babylon ends in 531, 20 years later. And who should take over the Medo-Persians, which is just a union of two kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians, just to let you know. So, I think Daniel was transported there in 551, 20 years before what he predicts takes place, because God's taking him to where the new superpower will be, in Susa. Verse 3, I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it and none could rescue it from its power. It did as it pleased and became very great. Now, what we have here in figurative, symbolic, apocalyptic terms is the tale of the rise, kind of out of nowhere almost, of the Medo-Persian superpower, that is our two-horned ram, and its rise under the great figure of Cyrus, appropriately called the Great. In fact, if you want to do yourself a favour, let me, let me do a, it's just a slight side recommendation. If you're a podcaster, a person who listens rather than casts, then one of the best ones is one that's called um, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Hand up anyone, anyone heard of that? Is that, yes, thank you, there's four, yeah, that's great. So he does like three, four, it's basically free audiobooks, that's why you should do it. He's got a three-hour three one called The King of Kings One. And that is a three-hour, four-hour, I think, for that one, history of the rise of Cyrus the Great, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. And it is fascinating. He's a non-Christian guy, but what he does is he looks at what history sees and then also uses the Bible as a source and tracks the fascinating rise of Cyrus. And how, relevantly here, he conquers the world, sweeps everyone before him. No one stood against Cyrus the Great. And as you'll see in our little timeline, 531 is where Cyrus conquers Babylon. And again, just to beat my drum, remember, Daniel's getting this vision in 551 about the rise of the ram, 551, and then 20 years later, that prophecy comes true. But maybe you go, if you're still tracking with me, maybe you go, oh, but how do we know that the ram is actually Cyrus? How do we know that you're not just kind of making it up? Well, here's the benefit of chapter 8 over chapter 7, if they're going to have a debate. Chapter 8 actually provides you with an interpretation. Chapter 7, you can kind of, kind of work it out. Chapter 8 tells you. In fact, in your Bible, if you skip down to verse 15, which is kind of the end of the vision, we find out that an interpretation is given. We're not left guessing who the ram and the goat are. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a voice from Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. So we've got the man-like angel, Gabriel, who, just, just as a side bit of information, this is the first time an angel in the Bible gets a name. So there we go, that's interesting. So Gabriel, the angel, hears a voice. So he's standing before Daniel, and then 
Gabriel hears a voice out of the canal, which I think is probably God's voice. And God says, tell the man, tell Daniel the meaning of this vision. But Gabriel's like every other angel in the Bible. He strikes terror in the heart of those who witness him. So Daniel kind of swoons, has a death and resurrection experience. But when he's kind of brought back to life, he then listens. He listens and Gabriel says this, Son of man, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end or an end. It could kind of be either. 19, he said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. So there we have it. We're not left guessing that that ram is the Medo-Persian Empire that rise particularly under Cyrus. But here's the thing, despite the fact that that empire is expansive and impressive and it reigns, as you see, for 200 years between 531 and 331, that's actually not the focus of the vision, is it? It's the ram. Later still, it's a horn of the ram, but at the moment, it's the ram. So let's go to, back to verse 5 and have a look at the ram. As I was thinking about this, this picture of the Medo-Persians conquering the world, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram, furiously striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great. And who is this all-conquering great goat? Well, it's the Greek Empire, verse 21. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. And that first king of Greece is Alexander the Great. Hands up if you've heard of Alexander the Great. Great. I mean, good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, If you don't know Alexander, you should kind of read a book about him. But he is alongside Genghis Khan, or Genghis Khan, if you want to pronounce it that way, probably the greatest single general that ever lived. Guy never lost a single battle. And he's depicted as this goat conquering a ram because, again, little sidebar, goats do beat rams. It just seems to be a thing that I found out on YouTube. He defeats the ram, not that relevant, but just thought I'd let you know. He defeats the ram and he does it with such a pace that it depicts him kind of flying over the earth. And he does do it at an amazing pace. Look in the dead centre of our little timeline. 336 BC, Alexander succeeds Philip II of Macedon, his daddy, Alexander, then four years later, so he inherits a kingdom that's good, but like not great. He then, within four years, conquers Egypt, which was being the world superpower for a thousand years or thereabouts. And then a year later, he conquers the Persian Empire, the world superpower. In fact, if you read that account, it's basically five on one, Alexander versus Cyrus. This is Cyrus III because it's 200 years later. Five to one on Cyrus's terms, and yet Alexander still routes him, defeats him. And then what he does for the next eight years is just destroy everybody. From Egypt all the way to India. Never meets a battle he can't win. But then, I think at the age of 32, 
he dies. In 13 years, he conquers 3,000 square miles of territory, conquering the known world, as it's called, but at the hands of assassins or malaria or alcohol poison or septicemia or a genetic condition, or take your pick, we don't know. He meets his death in 323. Verse 8, the goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. So think about it, this is, this is the, the, the vision that Daniel gets in 551 BC, it depicts Alexander's untimely demise in 323 BC. That's some good prophecy right there. But wait, as our telemarketer says, there's more. Verse 8, at the height of its power and the large, as, uh, the large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Now, these, these four horns, we learn later from Gabriel, represent four kingdoms that will emerge from this nation but will not have the same power. And again, remarkable prophecy continues because what happens is Daniel, not Daniel, uh, Alexander dies, 32 or thereabouts, and then his kingdom is split into four amongst his four generals, Antiochus, Cassander, Ptolemy or Ptolemy, depending if you pronounce the P, and Seleucus. That giant kingdom split into four, four horns. And this is relevant for Daniel as a representative of God's people, Israel, because Israel ends up being stuck between two of them, between Ptolemies or or the Ptolemaic kingdom in Egypt, and the Seleucid kingdom in kind of Syria, and kind of Israel flips between the two. But it ends up eventually, I think you'll see that in 198, Palestine, that's, that's talking about Israel, comes under the control of the Seleucid Empire. So at 200 BC, it becomes a Seleucid vassal state or city. And here's where it gets interesting, because the rest of the prophecy and the rest of the sermon this morning doesn't focus on the ram of Cyrus, despite him being an amazing figure, or the goat of Alexander, despite being one of the great figures in all of history. No, the prophecy and our sermon focuses on another horn altogether. Verse 9, out of one of them came another horn which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land, which is Daniel's very kind of um, non-subtle way of talking about his own hometown, the beautiful land, Jerusalem or Israel. It grew until it reached the hosts of heaven and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and the truth was thrown to the ground. Well, just as the four horns have a historic figure they point to, so too does this horn. We have here, undoubtedly, the historical figure of Antiochus the fourth. Epiphanies. 
He was a Seleucid king, so ruled over Syria and Israel from 175 to 164 BC. It's Antiochus, not Cyrus and not Alexander, that takes central stage of this apocalyptic vision. Uh, but I wonder, like, be honest now, hands up if you've heard of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Oh, I'm very impressed at that. Okay, keep, no, keep your hands up, not to gloat, but I'm going to ask you another question. Keep them up if you, if you know of him. Keep your hands still raised if you've heard of him outside of biblical history. Well done, Bevan McGuinness and Scott Howard. Just to puff you up a little more. But there's a reason why only two super nerds know about Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. It's because he was a two-bit, short-lived nobody on the world stage. He is like the mayor of a regional Tasmanian town that no one cares about. Sorry, any Taswegians among us. And here's the sober point. As far as Daniel, as far as Gabriel, Gabriel, and as far, significantly now, as God himself is concerned, Antiochus IV Epiphanes is far, far more important. Why? Because Antiochus, unlike Cyrus, unlike Alexander, Antiochus threatened the existence of God's special people, the Israelites. You see, the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire were unbothered by Israel's worship. Israel could do what she liked with her God. Antiochus, not so much. He had, and we actually don't know why, history records just have no explanation, at least no kind of material, historic explanation for why he hated not Israel, not the people, but their religion and customs. He was hell-bent on erasing the Israelite faith, Old Testament religion. And during his ten or so year reign, he attacked all the central pillars of Old Testament worship. He desecrated the centre of worship, the sanctuary, God's temple. He stole all the gold and silver. And what's worse is he got a pig, the most unclean of animals in the Jewish mind. He brought it into the, the, the sanctuary, the holy place, and he sacrificed that pig, that unclean animal, to the god Zeus. There is nothing that we could think of, I think, as Australians that would even get close to the level of desecration and desolation that you'd feel as an Israelite, having the place where God himself dwells defiled. He made it illegal to, to sacrifice to God in Israel, or at least to the Jewish God. He burned copies of the Jewish law, the Torah. He made Israelite priests sacrifice to pagan gods. He banned circumcision, and he did it in the most brutal way imaginable. If he found a child that had been circumcised, a male boy, he would kill that child. He would then wrap it round its mother's neck, and he would kill the mother too. Such was his opposition to God's people 
that in the vision in verse 10, he's depicted as reaching up to the heavens and sweeping down the stars of heaven. Which I take to be the falling of angelic, godly beings. I know not how that works. In verse 24, Gabriel says he will become very strong, but not by his own power. You see, I think Antiochus, whether he was possessed or just compelled or impelled, there was a dark force at work in his schemes. His irrational hatred of God and his people was inspired by a dark force. Further proof of his wickedness is in verse 25. He takes his stand against the prince of princes, which is none other than God himself. Even his name, Epiphanes, means revelation of God. Antiochus takes no part in world history largely, but in apocalyptic history, the truer history, he is incredibly significant because he directly opposes God's plan, he threatens Israel and her future offspring. Which means he threatens the tribe of Judah, which means he threatens the line of David, and therefore, and critically now, he threatens the centre of God's plan of redemption, of restoration, of reconciliation, of justice, of peace and healing, because he threatens the birth of the Messiah, Jesus. No Israel, no Christ, no Christ's death and resurrection, no triumph over death, and the black beast wins. As far as eternity is concerned, Antiochus was far, far more significant than our man, Alexander. And here's the kind of last thing we're going to focus on for the last, I don't know, five minutes or so, if you're lucky. As Antiochus opposes Israel, as he slays the innocent, as that great horn crouches to devour Israel's children, he is fulfilling a kind of final element of apocalyptic literature, that truer-than-true literature. And it's this. Apocalyptic literature points to cyclical patterns or echoing events. And it uses vivid imagery to point to these reoccurring realities. As the theologian Peter Lightheart says, biblical history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Biblical history, and history, I think more generally, doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And one of the most common rhymes in biblical history, which is captured perfectly in this scene, is a dragon, a serpent-like figure, trying to disrupt the plan of God by devouring the seed, the offspring, the children of God. Serpent-like figure trying to disrupt the plan of God by devouring the children of God. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. That's where this reality is pictured most vividly and most relevantly. Revelation chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. 
and unfortunately for our Catholic brothers who I love, this is not Mary, this is the people of God, this is Israel, the 12 tribes. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. Daniel 8, Antiochus, anyone? The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. Isn't that just the most grotesque image? A woman splayed, about to give birth, and this vile, hideous dragon crouching, jaws open, ready to consume the infant. You see, this is a trope, a theme, that actually goes all the way back to the start of the Bible. I think back to Genesis 3, if you know it, in the garden, but after the fall, when God curses the woman and the man and the snake, he says this, So the Lord God said to the servant, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, that's your seed and hers. He, the seed, will crush your head and you will strike his heels. You see, here is the promise right in proto-history, the start of creation, the promise that the seed of the woman, her offspring, will one day crush the head of Satan. And Satan knows this promise. He's literally there. So throughout the Bible, serpent-like figures, serpentuan figures, are constantly trying to destroy the children, the offspring of Israel. Whether it's the serpent Pharaoh in Egypt trying to kill the Israelite infants, or the dragon Herod in Bethlehem slaughtering those that are two to three years old trying to get to the Christ, or the beast Antiochus killing the circumcised boys to rub out the Jewish line. The dragon is always crouching, trying to consume the seed. And he does it today, as Satan through various means and ways tries to attack the seed of that woman, Christ, and His church. But, and here's the crucial bit, here is the comfort for Daniel and for you and for me, the serpent always fails. Because God doesn't predict the future, He writes the future, and He says that Satan will be crushed. Daniel verse 8, verse 25, He will destroy many people, speaking of Antiochus, and take his stand against the Prince of Pieces, Prince of Princes, yet he will be destroyed and not by human power. See, like Pharaoh before him and Herod after him, Antiochus will not succeed. He will meet his match and his end. And the story of his downfall is the story of a man called Judas the Hammer Maccabeus, which is an incredible history of one miraculous victory after another as Israel conquer Antiochus. Don't have time for that now. Here's what we need to know to close. And it's what Daniel needed to know, is that eventually in time, the opposition will end. The seed will persevere, be preserved and triumph. Good over evil, light over dark, peace over chaos. As Revelation records, Israel does give birth. 12 verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. 
See, the ram, the goat, the lion, the leopard, and ultimately that great beast, Satan himself, will be defeated by a cuddly little lamb. The lamb of God who is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. In his death and then in his resurrection, he triumphs over those malign, dark, brooding forces. The seed triumphs and crushes the head of the snake. But closing now, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that life is going to be easy in the meantime. Satan is cast down to earth and he prowls down like a raging lion. And that means that our personal history won't be so straightforward with good over evil. In fact, sometimes life will be so painful for us, grief so strong, that happy ending so far away, that all the words that I said today ring hollow to you. Even Daniel, right, more godly, more wise than you or I would ever hope to be, he hears this promise of the destruction of Antiochus. He knows that good will triumph, and yet still, verse 27 of chapter 8, I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Even knowing the apocalyptic truth does not shield us from pain and suffering, suffering and strife. Like Jesus, we know the triumph at the end, but that doesn't mean our life at times won't be a crucifixion like His. But as we do look at a world in turmoil, as we read the, head, the headlines which give our friends and families headaches and panics, as perhaps we look at our personal lives in disarray, we might be without a clue, without a plan, without a hope in our minds, but we know we worship a God who holds history in the palm of His hand. We worship a Lamb who was slain and yet rose again. We worship the One who once has, once did, and one day will finally and forever conquer the dragon and the beasts. Let's pray to Him now. Uh, Father, thank you that the future is not up for grabs. Thank you that you are not powerless or indifferent. You are powerful and involved. We thank you for the way that you preserved your seed. We thank you that from it came our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Just pray that you might help us to trust him more and more, to learn how to be able to look at a world in chaos and trust the peace that he once brought and will bring again. In Jesus' name, amen.